a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's all about asking the right questions. And we are going to be doing exactly that today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, and also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. My friend Eric Peters joins me to give us his take on the world today. Eric, how are you? Well, I'm good, and I'm not taking a knee either. Yeah, <laughs> Let's talk about it. Two years ago, that was all the rage. I mean, you were seeing members of yep. Congress, the FBI, uh, for crying out loud, in little old St. George, Utah, the the chief of police and the mayor were out there taking a knee, you know, to show solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are a lot of figurative ways that we're being told to take the knee. You were telling me mm-hmm. before we went on the air about uh, members of a, of a sports team that uh, were given mm-hmm. the opportunity to take the knee and politely declined. What's the story behind that? Well, well, first of all, this whole thing is so disingenuous and cowardly. It's not an individual choosing uh, to do something to convey uh, their disapprobation of something. It's this attempt to gaslight and shame people into doing things uh, that other people want them to do in order to, like, for example, show that you stand with keys uh, or the Black Lives Matter thing and all of that. But in this particular case, there's a, a baseball team. I don't know whether it's a, um, a, a pro level or, or semi-pro, because I don't really follow sports that much. You can probably elaborate on this. But at any rate, it's July, and so it's Pride Month. And so this team was gaslit and expected to put on the rainbow flag to show how they stand with the LBGTQXYZ community, as it's styled. And a number of the players had the fortitude to not take the proverbial knee and said, no, you know, I'm not going to put on this patch. They didn't say anything derogatory. They simply stood up for their point of view and said no to this woke agenda, which is the key to defeating the woke agenda. Yeah, it's I think there's there's a great lesson in there for anyone who's willing to acknowledge it. And that is, you know, taking the knee is just kind of a very outward form of virtue signaling. This is my moral superiority over the rest of you. Look at me. I'm taking a knee. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm better than you, as opposed to actually going through the effort of living as a decent person. Sure. And notice the parallel between what's going on there and the whole mask thing. Remember when they would say that wearing is caring? Yes. Yep. And, and in other words, it wasn't really about preventing yourself from getting or giving the sickness. It was to show that you care. And I've heard that refrain repeatedly from other people who say, yeah, I realize that this isn't preventing me from getting uh, the cooties or giving them. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being considerate of the feelings of other people. You know, and they don't see that they're being pressured to do something that they would not otherwise uh, do, except for this, this this campaign of shaming and gaslighting that's been going on. Well, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself, but I'm really sick and tired of the shaming. <laughs> I, I just yeah. I don't want to accept it, and I I applaud those ball players for having the um, yeah. the courage to do so. You know, people talk about oh, it's so courageous, you know, to stand up and be part of the resistance. You know, every corporate entity in America right now is flying a rainbow flag and just forcing it all down our throats. That's not courageous to be a part. You're not part of the resistance if the media and all the corporate of of corporate America is on your side. 
No, it's the antithesis of it. You know, if anything, you're rewarded for doing it. Uh, real courage is taking a stand about something that uh, that doesn't have the seal of approval of the forces of political correctness that might subject you to some kind of disapprobation and disapproval for doing it, like not wearing the face diaper, for example. That was a brave thing for, to do for the people who did it. And it's a very brave thing that those ball players decided to not put on the stupid pride flag when they went out on the field to play baseball. Yeah, because their job is not to go out there and represent a particular political ideology or a particular social justice cause. Their job is to go out there and play baseball and make it worth the fans who are paying, I presume, pretty decent prices, you know, for those tickets. Mm -hmm. And who don't want to see that. And then there's this coercive element that's, that's always sub rosa that's there. You know, implicit in all of this is that if you don't go along with it, if you don't put on that little pride flag, that they're going to bring repercussions. You know, maybe those five players uh, are now going to be benched or even removed from the team for whatever reason. And they knew that. And yet they preferred to take a stand uh, and, and to do the courageous rather than the cowardly thing. Let me pick your brain just a little bit here, Eric. I know that uh, you are... You're not unfamiliar with history. You've cracked a history book a time or two. I can tell through your writing. You've you've paid attention to some of the lessons of history. What is one of the, the takeaways when you see a society basically shed any pretense of right and wrong and really embrace debauchery, whether we're talking, you know, third uh, century A.D. Rome or uh, 1930s uh, Germany? What what does it portend when a society basically lets its moral compass just go away? Well, moral chaos uh, is, the, is the necessary precursor to civilizational chaos. You can't have civilization when you haven't got trust and standards. And you can assume that for the most part, people are honest. They're not out to cheat you. Um, and that you can go outside without getting shot by somebody. And that the government isn't actively trying to hurt you. And, and all of these necessary things that are required to form any kind of a community that has any kind of structure and cohesion to it. And that's, that's unfortunately what's happening in this country. Though, I don't want to be too gloomy about it because they want us to be gloomy about it. I think it's incumbent on us to preserve civilization, even if it's only on an individual level, but uh, also within your family, your community. And by doing that, you rebuild civilization. Here, here. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. The courage of one person standing up and saying, no, nah, I'm not going to play along with that, will give other people courage to do likewise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, ha it has a tendency to spread. <laughs> uh, really, it does. I, I noticed that you and I talked about this uh, more than a year ago, even two years ago, when I was relaying how I was going to these, these stores at the height of weaponized hypochondria and masking as the only person in there without the thing on. And how on a number of occasions, I had people come up to me and thank me for doing it. And uh, I believe that that gives encouragement to other people. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I'm just saying that each person who refuses to embrace the lie, Zulchnitz and had a lot of good stuff to say about this, uh, helps to destroy the lie. Yes. Yep. That's My kids and I have actually had this conversation. Maybe it was against their will, but every time we've had a long car drive, um, we've found time to talk about live not by the lie and, and how powerful mm -hmm. that is at the individual level. I know it's, it, like you said, it feels overwhelming sometimes, like all the odds are stacked against us, but even those little personal victories add up. No question about it. Absolutely. And, you know, what they have succeeded in doing, when I refer to they, I mean the, the, the forces and entities that are behind all of this, what they succeeded in doing is making so many people so fearful about their jobs, about how they're viewed in society through social media and all of this, 
to instill implicitly this threat of repercussions if you don't go along with whatever it is they're saying you are obliged to go along with. And so many people have been conditioned to that state of stoop-shouldered, head-down uh, submissiveness that they do go along with it. And it's a horrible place to be. You know, nobody likes that. Who wants to be uh, afraid like a turtle that somebody's going to hit you on the head and sticking your, your head back in your shell? So the solution here is to stand upright, square your shoulders, look it in the face, and call it what it is. Hear, here. You actually had a great article earlier, uh, I guess just a few days ago, about uh, about all this democracy. Because we're kind of we're kind of mm-hmm. led to believe, oh, well, if this is what the majority wants, and this is what everybody has mm-hmm. to do, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what democracy is, what it isn't, and and why we shouldn't get caught up in buzzwords like, oh, this means I must go along. Yeah, it, it's it's a very subtle and dangerous term. Uh, you know, at, at core, it means majority rule. Uh, and in a political context, what that means is authoritarian collectivism you know, based on the supposed majority, which really is, by the way. You know, I point out in my article that in pretty much every American presidential election in modern history, uh, the winner has been the person who gets approximately 51 percent, uh, sometimes less, of the, the, the votes cast. And of those votes cast, those are only about half the eligible votes. So the winner is somebody who's got about 26 percent, maybe, of the, uh, of the eligible votes which means he's been elected by the minority. But really, the, the, the whole point I'd like to make here is that it's force that makes democracy evil. It's one thing if you and I, let's say, and our wives are sitting around uh, the, the table and, and, and talking about, hey, where do we want to go out for supper tonight? And uh, the majority says, hey, let's go to the Chinese place. Um, and maybe there's one person there who doesn't want to go to the Chinese place, but they're not forced to go, and there are no repercussions if they don't want to go. That kind of democracy is fine, and I think a lot of people make the mistake in their minds of equating that kind of democracy with the political kind, which is hugely dangerous because it simply means that if a majority decides to kill you by the ballot box, then they can do it, you know, right. and ultimately that's what it comes down to in a democracy. Well, it just it underscores the importance of knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for, and, and in, in so doing, finding the courage to stand by yourself. If necessary. Sure. Sure. Right. I mean, the loneliest minority in the whole world is the individual, right? Here, here. All right. Hold that thought, Eric. We are going to take a very quick break. We've got some more important things to discuss with my friend Eric Peters. Again, his website is ericpetersautos.com. I have thoughtfully provided a link to his website in my show notes. You can check them out at the show.com We'll be with you in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, I noticed this morning you had posted an article on empty houses. Mm-hmm. And, and because I'm right now... I'm renting and looking forward to a day, hopefully, knock on wood, when my wife and I can can once again purchase a home. But real estate prices being what they are, I'm not wanting to buy at the top of the market. But uh, you make a, you make an interesting observation about uh, there are a lot of houses out there that uh, are just sitting empty. That's mm-hmm. mysterious for for a time when there's when especially in the Intermountain West when there's so many people you know moving or have been moving to this area. Um, it's it's strange to think that there would be empty homes. 
yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. <laughs> we don't have any shortage of things to discuss. And one of the strange things that's happened over the last two years in my area, not just my area, and that's why I decided to write about it, because it seems to be happening all over the country, you have this phenomenon of houses that would go on the market and they would be sold within 24 hours in some cases, certainly no more than a week or two, just gone off the market. Uh, and then a number of them just sitting there, apparently without any occupants. I've got uh, at least two on my road that are like that. One of them was owned by a buddy of mine who had to sell his house because he got divorced. And nobody has moved into that house since it sold more than a year ago. And that's just very odd. I've never experienced anything like that here or anywhere else. And it made me wonder, well, who bought the house and for what purpose if it's not being used to live in? You know, there's this this uh, scuttlebutt going around that these humongous investment companies like BlackRock yep. and Vanguard are buying up private homes. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, well, for what purpose? You know, as an investment, what are they counting on? And uh, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I just don't see how that scales up. The thing that does make sense to me, perhaps, is that they're thinking what they're going to end up doing after people can't afford to live in houses anymore or to own them, I should say. They're going to rent them to people. Or and there's even a more alarming prospect. If you dig into some of the HUD and federal government UKZs and, and policy papers, there's something called affirmatively furthering fair housing. And what that means is exporting Section 8-type housing out to the sticks in rural areas like where I live and where you live uh, and using the government to pay the rent to these big corporations and also thereby turn these solidly uh, red areas into blue areas so as to help enshrine forever the political dominance of the left. Wow. Okay, that that is chilling. And I'm sure to some people, well, that sounds really exclusive of you guys. You got yours, and you don't want to spoil the neighborhood. But the, the thought of government being more involved in housing, period, just puts a, mm-hmm. a chill up my spine. Well, and you know, if you get back to what you just said, yeah, I've got mine because I worked for it and paid for it. And I have no objection to anybody else getting it if they work and pay for it. I do have an objection to being made to pay for somebody else who didn't work for it and just give it to them at my expense. And I don't think that is a selfish uh, or unreasonable position to take. No, I, I think economically we are we're in a really interesting and precarious place, and I I won't begin to predict how it's all going to shake out. But um, you know, diesel I understand is in very short supply on the East Coast. I don't know yeah. if that if, is that something that you're seeing. Yeah, it is, and more more interestingly than that, DEF. You're familiar yeah. with that? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who aren't, uh, I'll give a, just a quick explanation of it. DEF is the acronym for Diesel Exhaust Fluid, which is an emissions control or part of the emissions control system of all modern diesels. And if you don't add this stuff into the tank, uh, the car's computer or the truck's computer will eventually shut the thing off. So if you don't have DEF, even if you have the diesel fuel, the thing won't work. Wow. Yeah, my, my son ran into something like this with his... Uh... He's got a Volkswagen TDI and, and called me mm-hmm. in a panic one day. Hey, uh, I, I put in DEF, but it's not saying that it uh, that it's it doesn't note that the DEF was put in it. And he says, if I shut this thing mm-hmm. off, I don't think I'm going to be able to start it again. I went, oof. Yeah. They right. got that's us coming and going. Exactly right. <laughs> well, yeah, they do. And you know, it's, it's, it's not by accident. You know, Stalin understood that the way to control the population is to control food. And another way to control the population is to control energy. If you haven't got gas or diesel, uh, it's very difficult to go anywhere. You're, you're pretty much stuck wherever you are, at least within the orbit of wherever you can walk or ride a bicycle or ride a horse. 
And of course, there's further repercussions because it's not just what it costs to put in your, your car or your truck or how far you can go uh, in your car or truck. Food gets shipped to stores using vehicles that burn gas and diesel. And it takes diesel and petrochemicals to grow food and to feed animals. And all of these things are being throttled back by these people who seek to control us. I do not think it's accidental. I don't think it's random. I think it's a deliberately contrived effort uh, to ensurf us, you know, to make us get, get us to a point where we're compelled to be obedient in return for, as they put it, our daily bread, whatever pittance they decide to allow us. Yep. I, I see it too. And I, I don't care if people think, well, you guys sound like you should be wearing tinfoil hats. I can't deny what I'm seeing. And, it, and, and the disturbing aspect is this all seems very deliberate. It seems very planned and, and convenient for, for the ruling class who, who is just trying to keep a handle on us, I guess. Sure. You don't need a tinfoil hat. It's self-evident. The facts speak for themselves. None of this is the result of some unforeseen calamity. Uh, that we're just having to deal with and that the government is doing its best to ameliorate. These are all entirely confected artificial things. Uh, two years ago, gas was what, about two bucks a gallon? Yeah. And there's no reason it couldn't be two bucks a gallon right now. There's plenty of gas. That's not the problem. The problem is that the supply of it is being throttled back deliberately on purpose. And the currency has been devalued deliberately on purpose by the infusion of massive quantities of, of federally created money. You know, and it's given our money less less purchasing power and has impoverished us as a result. They're not stupid. All of these things could be corrected to one degree or another. Certainly the fuel thing could easily be corrected simply by opening up the pipelines, you know, uh, allowing uh, companies to, to explore for oil and to bring it out of the ground and to refine it and distribute it. There's no problem there except the problem of government. Well, do you see any um, potential relief on the horizon? Uh, unfortunately, I don't, and that's both a, both a blessing and a curse. A curse for the obvious reason, because it's going to make life much harder for so many people um, who are going to feel the pinch and who already are feeling the pinch. But uh, it's hard to be asleep when you feel the pinch, isn't it? Uh, and to get people, I think, are beginning to wake up to the reality that all this virtue signaling about the climate, let's say, and about all these other things that's being trotted out as a justification for the pain that's being inflicted on people – it's bad. You know, people are beginning to think, you know, oh, my gosh, I might not be able to continue to afford to, to go to work or to afford my mortgage or to afford to get food for my family. And that tends to focus your attention pretty quickly and make you begin to think about who is who and what uh, is responsible for uh, imposing all of these harms on you. Well, I appreciate the encouragement that you offer and the insights that you offer on a uh, pretty much a daily basis on your website. Anything else of interest that's on your radar screen that you'd want our listeners to know about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the other day, the Biden thing, I like to style him that because that's what he is, uh, has decreed uh, another 5% uh, uh, dilution of our gas via by, by ethanol, corn juice. So uh, this, is, this is presented to the public as a way to reduce the cost of gas. But what it's going to end up doing is increasing the cost of driving because uh, the more ethanol that you put in gas, uh, the less efficient your vehicle is. So if you're operating on a car that's burning 15% ethanol and 85% gas, you're going to suffer a very noticeable diminution of your mileage. You're going to go not as far, so you're going to be filling up more often. So even if your, uh, your cost per gallon is slightly less, which I doubt it will even be, you'll still end up paying more overall because you're going to be burning more of this stuff thanks to the Biden thing. Wow. Well, 
keep the faith, brother. <laughs> we've, we've got I will. A- Absolutely. It's all we've got. We you know, don't. and we, that is our, I think that's our moral obligation at this moment in time is for those of us who are wrong thinkers to keep alive the flame of objective reality and also of compassion, of empathy, and of respect for individuals, you know, for the, the integrity of, of each human being uh, to be the decider of their own life. That's our job. You know, it, it we may, may be many, many years before the broader society recovers those virtues, but I do think that it will eventually in time if we hold it and do it. Agreed. Eric, thank you so much. Again, I've got a link to your website in my show notes. I look forward to our next conversation. Me also, Brian. Be well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to sewingatquiltingcenter.com. They have a store located in St. George, Utah, which is great news for anybody within my Southern Utah listening audience. And if you or someone you know enjoys the sewing arts, and yes, they are arts, maybe they enjoy long-arm quilting or they like to do embroidery, just know that uh, the technology has progressed to the point where this is a very, very serious pursuit. I mean, you can, you can get into sewing with a wonderful machine that will do so many things for you for under $200. And I mean, really, like if you're just starting out, this is a great place to begin. From there, it just goes onward and upward. And I mean, the the high-end long-arm quilting machines and the embroidery machines, well, let's just say they'll, uh, they're, they're not cheap. I mean, they are remarkable instruments. But here's the beautiful thing. When you buy from SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, they will teach you. They will give you free classes to show you how to use your machine to its fullest potential. They have all the supplies you need. They can service whatever you've bought from. In fact, if you, even if you bought your sewing machine from somebody else and it needs service, take it to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They have very skilled technicians, and they're a wonderful family-owned business. Well, I wanted to uh, touch on a question that uh, this is, this is going to be a tough one. I don't think very many people stop and ask themselves this unless they're really facing some kind of existential crisis. And the question is, is it rational to believe so deeply in something that you would actually be willing to die for it? I mean, right in our hearts, we all, well, I know what I would stand for, and I know what I would die for, and sometimes we can play it out in our heads, and yes, I would be the hero of this movie of my life if I just make this bold stand, you know, and I would die for this. Putting it into practice is quite a different thing, though. And Paul Rosenberg, I thought, had a really thoughtful essay on what would you die for? I wanted to share his take. This is just as a thought starter. This is nobody suggesting, hey, you need to die or you're not serious about you know whatever. But listen to what he says. When it comes to the question, what would you die for? He says, we're asking a rather uncomfortable question, but it's an important question for every adult to face, for young adults, even for teenagers to face. For what would you risk a certain or near certain death? Now, Paul Rosenberg says it's by answering such a question that we define ourselves more than as more than intelligent meat machines. He says, answering the question in any positive way <clears throat> defines us as deep beings. In other words, as transcendent beings. 
So this question then is sort of a pivot upon which our beliefs about ourselves and our expressions of ourselves, and it's also on a very, very deep level. So does answering that kind of a question involve reason? Is dying for the sake of something else rational at all? Right? I mean, come on. We look at suicide bombers. Oh, they're irrational, crazy lunatics. And at the same time, we give, you know, Congressional Medals of Honor to, uh, you know, people who without any thought for himself or his own safety, he charged the enemy pillbox and saved the lives of many of his comrades. You, You see what I'm saying? I guess it depends on the context. Here's a thought from Rabbi Herschel, who says nobody can rationally explain why he should sacrifice his life and happiness for the sake of the good. The conviction that I must obey the ethical imperatives is not derived from logical argument, but originates from a certain, uh, rather from an intuitive certitude, in a certitude of faith, end quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, there have been attempts to find a third option, that of instinct, instinct, rather. We choose to die, the argument goes, for people who share our DNA, that we will if it preserves enough of our DNA. So somehow our instincts know this and drive us, again, irrationally to sacrifice ourselves. A mom charging into a school with a shooter to save her kids, right? Maybe that's an example of this. But he says there are even a few examples of this alternative in the, nat- in the natural world. Those examples, though, involve microbes or aphids or ants. These are creatures who, first of all, lack reason and who are far removed from humanity in many other ways. Paul Rosenberg says, My feeling is that the Save the DNA model is serving mainly those people who are committed to the selfish gene theory, which is a starkly deterministic or meat machine theory. And it's probably fitting to include a thought from Eric Hoffer on determinists. Hoffer said, There is an element of misanthropy in all determinists. To all of them, man as he re- to all of them rather, man as he really is a nuisance. Let me try that one more time. Man as he is, is really a nuisance. And they strive to prove by various means that there is no such thing as human nature. End quote. So at the end of this all, Paul Rosenberg says, we still face the question, who or what would we be willing to die for? Would we die to save the life of our children? Would we die to preserve the life of our spouse, the lives of our parents, our siblings, someone else? Would we die to preserve human freedom? Would we die to preserve the accumulated knowledge of the world for the truth of God for something else? He says, now that's a demanding question, I know. So let's take a moment to address it in a very practical way. We could start with something like this. If you could save the entire human race by flying your spaceship into an evil alien spaceship that was about to vaporize our entire planet, would you do it? Now he says most people, I dare say, would say yes to this question especially if they've watched Independence Day, right? I happen to think this is a very good thing, but he says it's only a start. So if you could say yes to that question, I'll ask you to do this as well. Take some time to imagine doing it. See it slowly and in detail. Live it. What would you think about? Who would you try to send a message to? What would you say? Now, he says, in my opinion, this may be one of the most important exercises you ever undertake, so please linger over it. Run it in your mind as you fall off to sleep. Then once you've done this repeatedly, once you've worn it out, think about lesser scenarios. Would you do it to save half the world? Would you do it for your child? For a dear friend? You see where he's going with this? He says, in the end, Rabbi Herschel was right. And this isn't essentially rational. 
Rather, it comes from our depths. Being willing to give up our very lives, we judge ourselves as being larger than our lives. Somehow and in some way, we accept that good calls to the good, that life calls to life. These things make us, by our own internal structures and convictions, transcendent beings. We can't prove these things, but that doesn't mean that they're false. It only means that they're just not measurable items. In the end, far more of our lives involve faith than we've understood. As the rabbi also noted, man's true fulfillment depends on communion with that which transcends him. Paul Rosenberg says, if you could imagine the spaceship scenario and feel okay about it, then you've put yourself into Rabbi Herschel's model. And for a practical confirmation, here's a telling passage from war reporter Chris Hedges. Quote, In the end, those who rebel require faith, not a formal or necessarily Christian, Jewish, or Muslim orthodoxy, but a faith that the good draws it to the good, that we are called to carry out the good insofar as we can determine what the good is. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg says, look, please consider the question carefully. For whom or what would you be willing to die? A good deal turns upon it. Now, I'm sorry to hit you with something that heavy. I know, it's, it's like, wow, way to suck all the air out of the room there. Thanks a lot, Bri. But I think it is a healthy thing to, to really consider. And, and I, this is why I believe it's, it's something that should be considered and actually something we probably should work out in our own minds or in our hearts ahead of time. If you wait until the moment of crisis where it really is a life-or-death decision. Most people, instead of rising to the occasion, will simply freeze in place. And, you know, it's, it's too late to really make the big decision. It's the kind of decision that you would want to make ahead of time and be comfortable with. And when I say comfortable, I mean be at peace with your conscience with that kind of a decision. I know that, you know, anybody who stands up for freedom particularly, is, is portrayed as, well, there's some kind of extremist. In fact, I believe that's kind of the, the favored phrase right now of the political class. Yeah, this extremism. Uh, they like to add other ad- adjectives. <clears throat> you know, it's white nationalist extremism, white supremacist extremism. But people who love freedom, people who understand what a precious gift it is and who are determined to claim it, use it, and defend it as their natural right, You can't do that without being at risk. And there have been times and places in history, and I believe we are standing at uh, something very near to one of those times and places, where the determination to live as a free individual is going to require making a decision to, to live and to love something more than you love life itself. One of the great contemporary examples of this, I believe, was my friend Lavoie Finnicum. He's very well known for saying there are some things that matter more than life itself. Freedom is one of those things. And I know it's easy for people to say, well, those are just idle words. But in in Lavoie Finnicum's case, those were not just idle words. They were words by which he lived and sadly by which he died. I don't think his death was in vain either. Over the years, I have talked to an awful lot of people who heard him speak, who felt the power and the conviction, dare I say, the faith that was there in what he had to say. And his death, well, it sealed that message in a way that uh, really made it stick. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Dixie Chiropractic. That's DixieChiro.com. Anyone dealing with car accident injuries or neuropathy or bulging herniated discs would do well to jump online and check out their website, DixieChiro.com. This is the website of Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic. Ask about the $99 intro special. If you have bulging herniated discs, this includes two treatments plus massage for $99. That's a killer deal. Or if you have neuropathy, the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. DixieChiro.com is their website. I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. When you make your appointment with them, please let them know you heard about it on this program. So I kind of want to build on what I was talking about in the last segment about how, you know, there were some things that are truly worth standing for, even at the the cost of uh, comfort, reputation, sometimes your, your personal freedom, sometimes at the cost of your life. It's a matter of having your priorities straight. And I think right now, this is a time to really know what our priorities are. I've got a great article here from Barry Brownstein. Uh, this is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Freedom stands above everything. I'm going to give you a couple excerpts here. He says, there are those such as Boston University professor Ibram Kendi, who say that any differences in outcomes between racial groups is the result of racism. Kendi's fond of broad definitions. If you support anything through your actions or inaction that Kendi claims to lead to racial inequality, well, you're a racist. Racism, Kendi informs us in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is bonded to free markets. This is Kendi. Quote, to love capitalism is to end up loving racism. To love racism is to end up loving capitalism. The conjoined twins are two sides of the same destructive body. The idea that capitalism is merely free markets, competition, free trade, supplying and demanding, and private ownership of the means of production operating for a profit is as whimsical and ahistorical as the white supremacist idea that calling something racist is the primary form of racism. <laughs> He's on to us, folks. Uh, anyway, he says, popular definitions of capitalism, like popular racist ideas, do not live in historical or material reality. Capitalism is essentially racist. Racism is essentially capitalist. He says they were birthed together from the same unnatural causes, and they shall one day die together from unnatural causes. End quote. Wow. Now, Barry Brownstein points out, were free markets extinguished, all decisions would be political. Freedom would be snuffed out, and millions would be enslaved. Anybody who studied Marxism would know this and probably recognize a lot of what Kendi is saying here. Back to Brownstein's article. Budding revolutionaries like Kendi may imagine themselves as heroes of the new republic they hope to create. Kendi's naive supporters may think, well, I'm one of the good guys. I'll keep or enhance my position in society, and the problems I perceive will be fixed. But Barry says they will be in for a rude awakening. As F.A. Hayek explains, in free markets, human beings adjust to the blind forces of social process as they engage in their pursuits. Now, the alternative is to to endure coercive political processes. Hayek explains, coercion is not the more palatable alternative. Quote, so long as he knows only the hard discipline of the market, he may well think the direction by some other intelligent human brain preferable. But when he tries it, he soon discovers that the former still leaves him at least some choice, while the latter leaves him none. 
and that it's better to have a choice between several unpleasant alternatives than being coerced into one, end quote. So Barry Brownstein says if they weren't ahistorical, the naive would know that the revolution they support will be unpredictable and indiscriminate about who it destroys. Now, admittedly, for some, Hayek's analysis of political and economic forces can be dry. They may find more riveting the historical account of the triumph of politics over economics in the Soviet era, brought to life by the dissident Vasily Grossman in his novel Everything Flows. Grossman explored the complete inhumanity of the Bolshevik revolutionaries. They began to build a state such as the world had never seen. Cruelty, murders, deprivations of every kind. All this was of no account. It was, after all, being carried out in the name of Russia and laboring humanity, in the name of the happiness of the working people. And their philosophy was inherently contradictory. They had no doubt that the new world was being built for the people. It did not trouble them that it was the people themselves, the workers, the peasants, the intelligentsia, who constituted the most insuperable obstacle to the building of the new world, of this new world. For the true believers, the revolution was the happiest, most romantic period of their life. Yet once the brutal Bolshevik revolution was completed, its terrible coercive power was used against many of those who fought for it. The prisons were filled with hundreds of thousands of people from the generation of the revolution and the civil war. This is Grossman's quote, by the way. It was they who had defended the Soviet state. They were both the fathers of this state and his children. And now it was they who were being taken into the prisons they had built for the enemies of Russia. Of the new Russia, rather. They themselves had created the new order and endowed it with terrible power. And now this terrible chastising might, the might of dictatorship, was being unleashed against them. They themselves had forged the sword of the revolution. Now the sword was falling on their heads. Many of them, too many of them, it seemed as if they had entered a time of chaos and insanity. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein points out thoughtless obedience was expected. Children were expected to denounce parents. For those who hunted imagined enemies of the state, their faith lay solely in the mercilessness of the chastising hand of the great Stalin. The agents of Stalin were told, you have neither father nor mother, neither brothers nor sisters. You have only the party. A mere denunciation was enough to trigger an arrest and destroy a life. And no one was protected from Stalinist purges. No one was safe, not the secretaries of the district and provincial party committees, military commissars, heads of political sections, commanding officers of regiments, divisions, and entire armies, captains of ships, agronomists, writers, livestock specialists, officials from the commissariat of foreign trade, engineers, ambassadors, civil war partisans, public prosecutors, chairman of factory committees, university professors. Grossman asks, why were they being forced to confess to crimes they'd never committed? Why had they been declared enemies of the people? Why were they being cast out from the life they had built, the life they had defended in battle? Today, many wonder why they're being labeled racists. The revolutionaries had destroyed others as fanatically and mercilessly as if they were rabid dogs. Then the table was turned, and they were equated with those whom they hated and despised. Grossman explains, sometimes a former district party committee secretary would end up in the same cell as the district party committee secretary before him, whom he himself had unmasked as an enemy of the people. And then a month later, yet another party committee secretary from the same district would join them on the bedboards in the prisons and gulags. 
Imprisoned, they would be interrogated for 24 hours a day until they repeated, after the investigator, <clears throat> the words, I confess that having become a paid agent of foreign intelligence inspired by a ferocious hatred of everything Soviet, I was prepared, preparing to commit acts of terrorism against Soviet statesmen and at the same time supplying secret information. Stalin's plans had to be perceived as infallible, and so when his plans failed, he found it necessary to concoct endless non-existent conspirators. Grossman says by torturing them for days, weeks, months, and sometimes even whole years, the security organs compelled poor, tormented accountants, engineers, and agronomists to take part in theatrical productions to play the roles of villains, foreign agents, terrorists, and saboteurs. Now, Barry Brownstein's point is no one was safe, yet... Was something extraordinary being built amidst the reign of terror? Since the very question is ridiculous. Good can never come from hate and force, but some believe it can. Now, there's so much more to this article. It's, I, I won't have time to, to share it all, but he talks about the state as master, and I'm just going to jump right to, to, the, to the end here. First of all, he urges you, read Grossman. Read his novel. He will forever cure you of the idea that you can reach a noble goal by taking away someone else's freedom and not have the beast that you create destroy you. Today's revolutionaries should be really wise to pay attention to this. Barry Brownstein says Grossman's curriculum was forged from bitter experience. He bore witness to human misery as politics triumphed over all else and freedom was extinguished. The lessons he teaches have universal application. Barry Brownstein asks, can the transformation of America to a state without freedom be stopped? Is it possible to learn of the dangers to freedom and human progress without first living through our own bitter experiences? Do enough of us believe, as Grossman did, that freedom stands above everything? Or will we sacrifice freedom to fit in with popular, illiberal forces? Does not everything depend on our answers to these questions? I know, I bang the drum hard every day on this program. Talking about the primacy of freedom, why it's worth standing up for, rah, rah, rah. There are alternatives out there. But having tasted freedom and appreciated it and understanding what a great gift it is, I don't know how any of us could settle for anything less. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you are one of those people who's brave enough to question the narrative, I'd like to drop a little truth bomb on you as we begin this hour of the show. You know who controls the narrative? Keeping in mind that there are some very highly paid, very skilled, blow-dried spinmeisters out there whose job is to keep the public on track and, and within the boundaries of the official narrative. But you know who really controls the narrative? It's the people who ask questions. Think about it. Would there be this this campaign against misinformation and disinformation, uh, outright censorship on so many social media platforms, 
if it weren't for the people who are asking questions? Just a little something to think about, because what that means is if you're asking the right kinds of questions, if you're shining light into the darkness by those questions, you're actually having some real impact. I can't think of a nice way to say that. So, so in my clumsy way, if you are causing the powerful to fear because the questions you're asking might be raising doubts in the minds of an otherwise compliant or submissive, uh, submissive public, my friend, you're doing your job. Even if it's just a couple of people or one person who starts to question that official narrative because of your efforts, your example, you're moving the world in a better direction. Don't doubt that. Well, let's jump right in. I'm, I'm going to risk sounding heretical, but I'm going to suggest that uh, there are some very good reasons why Donald Trump should not run for president in 2024. Now, this is not meant to provoke, you know, Trump supporters, and I know Trump supporters can be pretty passionate about him. But I've got an article here from Steve McCann. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And he makes a very strong case that Donald Trump should not run for president in 2024. I want you to hear him out before, you know, you have any kind of reaction. He says, Donald Trump should not run for president in 2024. His place in the pantheon of American presidents is secure, as he was the right president at the right time and will go down in history as among the nation's indispensable presidents. In the upcoming no-holds-barred war for the soul and future of America, he says it's time for the mantle to be passed on to others he has effectively mentored and who have shown a resolute willingness to follow in his footsteps. Trump's accomplishments are legion, and among the most important are not only awakening the citizenry to the potentially irretrievable headfirst dash into a permanent one-party socialist oligarchy, but doing so by doggedly battling these ideological elites and exposing their duplicity, extrajudicial procedures, megalomania, and premeditated election fraud and manipulation. He showed a nation stuck in a 28-year morass of political mediocrity and collectivism that fearlessness, determination, and implacable devotion to the principles of the nation's founding, together with a genuine empathy for the American people, would defeat a radical left-wing Democrat party and a feckless Republican establishment. Okay, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a second. I think he's right. And no, I'm not going to suggest that Donald Trump was perfect. Everything he did was, was perfect. But I will... I have to say this. I didn't vote for him in 2016 because I just felt like I couldn't in good conscience vote for either him or for Hillary. But I watched him very closely over the four years of his presidency. And it's absolutely clear he was not the monster that the media and the the political class, including many Republicans, assured us he was going to be. And I think he did a great deal to slow down the role of the juggernaut of the all-powerful Leviathan state that uh, we're feeling right now, especially when you're gassing up your car. So, back to the article. Donald Trump's inclusion on the list of indispensable presidents derives not only from his political, judicial, and legislative accomplishments, but the dramatically positive impact he had on the psyche of a hitherto despondent middle America. They are now keenly aware of who the ruling elites and their bedmates in the radical left are, They're also keenly aware that they're not invincible. By renewing and recasting many of the economic policies of Ronald Reagan and initiating an America First foreign policy, 
Trump not only reversed the downward trend of the nation, but with these overwhelmingly effective policies, showed the American people that there were viable alternatives that worked. Further, Trump's determined effort to recast the Republican Party as the party of all income groups, races, creeds, and ethnicities, and the Democrats as the party of the elites and left-wing radicals, is succeeding at an overwhelming and accelerating pace. Thanks to Donald Trump and thanks to Donald Trump, rather, most Republican candidates running for office at all levels of government now espouse and campaign on energy independence, school choice, a secure border, bringing jobs back to the United States, curtailing the power of the bureaucracy, reduced government regulations, deterrence against China, America first foreign policy, and most importantly, recapturing the nation's cultural and educational institutions. Now, Steve McCann says nothing exemplifies the importance of the Trump presidency more than the chaos, mismanagement, ignorance, and unmitigated failures of the fraudulently elected Biden administration. As the majority of as the vast majority of American people can see for themselves the stark differences between the two administrations. Because of Trump's success during his term, the citizenry is primed to soundly defeat the Democrats in November of 2022 and reject their nominee in 2024. Considering the paucity of visible or viable candidates, rather, to replace Joe Biden, the Democrats and the left in 2024 will either have to turn to either Bernie Sanders, Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, or clones thereof, or possibly a woke billionaire business luminary, or even a puerile Hollywood celebrity. All of whom, after four years of Joe Biden, cannot win in a national election that is not beset with fraud and rampant cheating. On the other hand... There are electable and viable Republican candidates who have been extraordinarily influenced by the presidency of Donald Trump, in particular, Governor Ron DeSantis, but also Senator Tom Cotton, Mike Pompeo, Senator Josh Hawley, and Senator Ted Cruz, all of whom are close with or have worked for Trump and would carry through with his agenda, and all of whom would do well as president, as all have repeatedly shown a determined willingness to wage war with the radical left and not back down or be intimidated by the usual left-wing character assassination and deep state tactics. Now, in 2024, Donald Trump will be 78. And Steve McCann says, as someone who is a year or so older than Trump, I have to sadly admit, based on personal experience and observing the octogenarians in Congress and the White House, that the time has come for politicians of both parties who are 78 and older to gracefully exit the national political stage. Despite six years of vile and unprecedented personal attacks and the resultant inevitable physical and emotional toll, Donald Trump is exceptional in his physical health and mental acuity. However, what would another six years, two campaigning and four in office of ruthless, unconditional warfare with America's implacable domestic enemies, as well as the daily and oftentimes unexpected challenges of the most difficult job on earth, do to his stamina and indomitability as he will be 82 when his second term expires? Steve McCann says if Trump were to defeat the ruling elites a second time, their nihilistic, radical, left-wing allies and media sycophants would be consumed with an uncontrolled vengeance. Their determination to destroy Trump on a personal basis would exceed that of his first term, thereby creating incessant and ongoing media-driven national chaos and anxiety and diverting the nation's or the citizens' attention from the necessity of utilizing every political tactic available to permanently defeat this malevolent cabal. Nor should Trump be expected to further erode and further damage his family business ventures. 
that would take significantly greater hits than what he suffered in his first term, during which he experienced a loss of over 33% of his net worth, or about a billion dollars. As was the case during his first term, his family, with whom he is remarkably close, would again be targeted and unfairly maligned while suffering their own emotional and personal financial losses. So Steve McCann says Donald Trump and his family have already sacrificed and paid a massive price on behalf of the American people. It's time for others, younger and unbowed, to come to the fore to accept the shield and sword from Trump and follow in his footsteps. Donald Trump's legacy is set in stone. After the midterm elections are over, he should announce he is not running in 2024. Instead, he should rest on his laurels and become the permanent titular leader as well as the conscience of the Republican Party. And more importantly, the preeminent advocate for all of the American people. Now, I think these are some pretty good reasons. And he mentions uh, Ron DeSantis from Florida as uh, probably one of the better choices to run for president. Now, you know, I'm kind of a political agnostic. I don't put a great deal of faith that any politician is going to make a difference. But I think there is some wisdom in advancing a candidate like Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump. And, And here's the wisdom. Trump did the job and was absolutely fearless in standing up to the left-wing onslaught. There, you can't argue that. He, he absolutely stood up, took the blows, and did it his way, with a nod to Frank Sinatra. Ron DeSantis is less chaotic in his leadership, much more methodical, but he is just as steely-spined and immovable in terms of he can't be intimidated by the left-wing media and political class. He would be a better choice. Something to keep in mind as the next couple of years uh, roll out and the campaign approaches. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been one of my longtime sponsors. I am so grateful for their support. They make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. And if you find value in this, if in any way this improves your life or your understanding, brings you encouragement, or kicks your butt into gear, one or the other, (laughs) I would encourage you, do business with Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If it's not you, maybe someone you know is looking for a a home loan, a VA loan, traditional loan, reverse mortgage. If they're anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, Heather can help you. She's got the clout. She's got the experience. She's got the team to make it happen, especially when time is of the essence. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I don't know if you had noticed, but uh, it's it's <clears throat> Pride Month. Yeah, it is. What was the meme I saw? Oh, this was so funny. Um, oh, yes. It was, uh, this is the Babylon Bee, of course. <laughs> In honor of Pride Month, Chick-fil-A waffle fries will be seasoned with salt from Lot's wife. Okay, maybe not everybody's going to find that funny, but dang it, the Babylon Bee still is, is the greatest source of humor that, uh, that I can immediately point to in these troubled times. Well, here's an interesting article from Michelle Martyr Kamhi. And she asks the question, and I want you to understand, she's, she's asking this from not a hateful standpoint, but simply from a philosophical standpoint. Should we normalize sexual deviance? 
And if you have seen some of the stuff that came out after last weekend's Pride festivals and drag your child to Pride kind of stuff, you know, there's no suggestion here about you. We need to abuse people who have different preferences or who are, are part of the LGBT community. But at the same time, can, can we at least acknowledge that there is a radicalism that is pushing this so hard, and especially towards children, young children, looking to exploit what, you know, gender identity or to create gender identity crises among youth? I'm sorry, I don't buy into the idea that, well, this has always been the case. We're just finally getting it out in the open. Now, this this has the feel of something much more deliberate. Michelle Martyrkami says, At the recent National Art Education Association convention, presenters of a session dealing with LGBTQ plus artists began with a rather startling declaration that we owe it to our kids to normalize the identities. Not one of the more than 230 other registrants for the session questioned that assertion. So she says, I find it deeply troubling because to normalize means to cause something previously regarded as anomalous, that is, as deviating from the norm or common order, to be accepted as normal, thereby altering the accepted norm. And she asks, do we really want to do this with LGBTQ identities, much less the own unknown identities subsumed by the plus sign that I omit here? Would doing so constitute a fundamental denial of reality with ultimately destructive implications for humanity? The perpetuation of our species, after all, depends on the binary male-female sexuality that LGBTQ individuals deviate from. The very term queer, represented by the Q in, in the abbreviation, signifies deviating from what is expected or normal. If such deviation were the norm, how long would humanity have survived? Now, it is true that advances in artificial conception tend to muddy this picture. Moreover, many couples choose not to have children, and sexuality involves more than procreation. Yet the existential necessity of procreation no doubt lies at the heart of traditional religious prohibitions against sexual deviance, and helps to explain, though not excuse, the persecution of LGBTQ individuals. Understandable concern for the well-being of such individuals, given their long history of persecution, moves teachers to advocate normalizing their deviant identities. But is that the best remedy for their past suffering? So here's what she argues should be done. She says, I would argue that the most salutary way to counter the persecution of LGBTQ individuals is by focusing on the ways in which they can and do contribute to society, to our shared humanity not by emphasizing their sexual deviation and seeking to normalize it. Now, to their their credit, the NAEA presenters uh, cited above advised fellow teachers not to focus on gender identity when utilizing the work of LGBTQ artists in the classroom. Yet their own choice of such artists, as well as their discussion of them, seems based primarily on sexual and gender identities rather than on the quality of the artist's work. Wow, that's a powerful distinction. For instance, how else to explain their astonishing failure to cite Michelangelo, Michelangelo, whose homosexuality did not prevent him from becoming one of the greatest artists of all time? That omission is all the more glaring in view of the contemporary mediocrities that were recommended for study. And the principle enunciated by Martin Luther King Jr. with respect to race is also relevant here. Our focus should always be on the caliber of the character and achievements of the individual, not on group identity. That meritocratic principle has been at the core of American greatness. 
and it's currently under assault by woke warriors, however, for allegedly promoting white supremacy. So what she's saying here is, we must reject identity politics. The LGBTQ issue highlighted here is but one expression of the present woke obsession with group identities that now pervades art education, as well as virtually every other arena of American life and Western society in general. To successfully oppose it, it is crucial to recognize that it is rooted in neo-Marxist ideology deliberately aimed at undermining democratic societies by sowing division. One of the destructive effects of the woke mindset has been the erosion of belief in the melting pot ideal. Yet that ideal enabled generations of diverse immigrants to become successful Americans, not in the least in her own family. And she says, as I've argued before, contrary to the claims of modern-day critics, that ideal did not require abandoning one's ethnic or religious identity. It meant embracing a second, transcendent American identity centered on espousing the core values enunciated in our founding documents and cemented by adherence to English as our common language. Most important to emphasize is what those founding documents promised, that is, the freedom to pursue happiness without harming others, not a guarantee of its attainment. Equal protection under the law in that pursuit, not a mechanism for producing equal outcomes, is what our system of government aimed to offer all individuals. By contrast, identity politics aims to achieve greater social justice conceived in terms of equity or equal outcomes. All perceived inequities are allegedly due to the oppression of certain identity groups by the group in power, namely Western, white, heterosexual men. Members of the designated oppressed groups are viewed as essentially helpless victims, unable to improve their lot without public intervention on their behalf. Now, she admits we have not always lived up to the promise of equal protection under the law. In that respect, we've not entirely lived up to our founding documents. But we have been engaged in an ongoing process of self-correction. Moreover, we have made great strides in the right direction, as evidenced most dramatically by the civil rights advances for blacks since the 1960s and by a sea change in the social status of women. And social justice warriors generally ignore the great progress that's been made toward fulfilling our founders' visionary promise. Instead of continuing along that path, they aim to replace our system with something essentially different. In place of equal protection under the law for all individuals, they seek to impose equal outcomes by bestowing benefits unequally based on group identity. Which leads to a tyranny of the minority. And ironically, she says, under such a tyranny, the objectively normal majority, heterosexual individuals, are often denigrated and disparaged. Still worse, they're burdened with unearned guilt as oppressors. Now, in the present woke climate, it's impossible to raise these concerns without attracting instant calumny for alleged homophobia and anti-trans hatred. But Michelle Martyr Kami says... In her experience, by challenging the woke groupthink in art education... This essay would be barred from discussion among the very teachers for whom it's most relevant. Yet the recent parental outcry nationwide against other aspects of of sex education, rather, clearly suggests most Americans share her concerns and would welcome thoughtful debate on the complex question of how best to deal with LGBTQ identities. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being part of our audience. I know you have so many choices as to where to spend your time and your mental effort in trying to make sense of the world. And thank you for letting me contribute in my small way to that understanding. Also want to give a shout out to HSLAmmo.com for being one of our premier sponsors here on the program. If you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, there is a link you can click. It'll take you right to the HSLAmmo.com website. And from there, you can browse, you can shop, you can uh, look for what you need, find it, and buy it. And that's something I hope you'll do. Well, the greatest danger from COVID at this point is not a resurgence of the virus. It's the danger of the lockdown policies spreading through society again. Another wave of lockdowns, if you will. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, says the CDC wants its COVID regime made permanent. This is not something we can sit back and just, you know, trust it'll work itself out. We've all stopped wearing our masks, you know. It's not going to come back. The problem is if we don't uh, maintain a strong defense against these lockdown policies, it is going to come back. Jeffrey Tucker, excuse me. Jeffrey Tucker says there is no remorse at the CDC. Far from it. The model of virus control deployed over the last 27 months is now part of normal operations. In other words, it wants it institutionalized. He says the bureaucracy has now codified this into a new online tool that instructs cities and states precisely of what they are supposed to do given a certain level of community spread. Now, the new tool doesn't say lockdowns as such, but the entire model of containment via masks and distancing is baked in and can be easily expanded at will. He says to understand how absurd this is, consider that as of this writing, major parts of southern Florida are supposed to be masked up according to the map provided by the CDC because COVID testing reveals high community spread. But you realize hardly anyone in Florida has worn a mask since 2020. The very notion is a joke there. However, what happens to the other states and what happens when or if political control of Florida changes to a pro-lockdown party? Under the orange label, which means high spread, the following pertains. Wear a mask indoors in public. Stay up to date with COVID vaccines. Get tested if you have symptoms. Additional precautions may be needed for people at high risk for severe illness. Now, some standout points here. Jeffrey Tucker says masks have nowhere controlled the spread of COVID. We know this from countless examples all over the world. They've been a spectacular failure, except as signals to others to feel a sense of alarm at the presence of disease. Neither have vaccinations achieved the stopping or even the slowing of infection or spread. Note the new language, too. Stay up to date. Vaccinations are headed toward the World Economic Forum idea of subscription plans. As for additional precautions, we know what that means. Lockdowns. Even now, the suggestions are to follow CDC recommendations for isolation and quarantine, including getting tested if you're exposed to COVID-19 or have symptoms of COVID-19. Implementing screening testing or other testing strategies for people who are exposed to COVID-19 in workplaces, schools, or other community settings as appropriate. Also, implement enhanced protection measures in high-risk congregate settings and consider setting specific recommendations for prevention strategies based on local factors. 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker cuts right to the chase here. We've seen this movie before. It's a recipe for full government control of life. In addition, he says, this new tool can easily move to a next iteration by the addition of a red color. It could mean shelter in place, close the schools, don't go to church, don't see friends, and so on. And so he says, I'll say it again, there is no remorse, no regret, no rethinking at all, no admission of error. On the contrary, it is all part of the plan to do it over again. In fact, a different version of the chart that he shares earlier in the article already has a code red, and it pertains to the country, the entire country. One version measures levels, the other measures transmission. Now, he says, you might say, well, these are just recommendations, and the CDC makes such goofy recommendations all the time. Cook your beef, well done. The trouble is that it puts the burden to reject the recommendations on politicians at the state and local level. Now, for that matter, there's really nothing in place that would stop a public health department anywhere in the country from implementing them on their own. Anyone objecting is almost immediately on the back front, attempting to justify the refusal to obey the CDC and thereby opening themselves up to the accusation that they're killing grandma and so on. He says it truly boggles the mind that the CDC has rethought nothing given the carnage we face in the country today. They talk about the data and the science, but pay attention to almost none of it. They forever fall back on their new doctrines and mostly their power. But Jeffrey Tucker reminds us this is about much more than lockdowns. It's about life itself, particularly as it affects economics. A new poll from the Wall Street Journal reveals that the percent of Americans who think the economy is poor or not so good is an incredible 83%. Now, maybe that doesn't surprise you and gives rise to the question of what demographic constitutes the 17% that think things are just fine. Maybe employees at the National Institute of Health or CDC or Department of Homeland Security or Pfizer or Moderna. Okay, he says, I take it back. Too cynical. The truth is that economic prospects now are just awful. And it's not just inflation. It's class mobility, demoralization, goods availability, and a general sense that hope in the future isn't what it used to be just a few years ago. That will surely have a big effect on November's midterm elections. The winning candidates will make elaborate promises to fix the problems, but how many among them will be openly critical of COVID mandates? The answer is not many. And he says this matters because the connection is direct. In fact, he says my personal frustration is that massive failure on the part of the media, intellectuals and average people to make the connection between the hell of the last 27 months in the name of disease control and these economic, cultural, education, and social outcomes. He says, for some odd reason I cannot fathom, there's a general impression out there that economic life exists in some insulated machine that's somehow detached from life experience. Therefore, it can be turned on and off. We turned it back on, so why aren't things going back to normal? Almost all of the suffering people are experiencing today traces to catastrophic policy pushed by the CDC with White House deference, thereby prompting the entire public health machinery around the country to swing into action, closing schools, businesses, churches, and giving Congress an excuse to spend some $6 trillion at least through debt finance that was quickly added to the Fed's balance sheet via money printing. The closures interrupted supply chains and shattered economic and social functioning. The fallout is what we see all around us. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, we've just experienced years in which it was demonstrated to the U.S. and the entire world 
how pandemic control can be deployed to utterly crush rights, freedoms, constitutional limits on states, and even everything we call civilization itself. What the CDC pushed on the country, even the world, was without precedent. The resulting disasters are everywhere present. At minimum, we should expect the CDC to cease and desist and certainly not entrench and codify. That the latter is taking place reveals what a long struggle lies ahead. I'm sorry if you were if you were hoping for good news or at least some reassurance. Well, at least it's all behind us. That probably dashes that notion. Well, I'd rather be uncomfortable and informed than uh, happy and uh, in danger, if that makes sense. <laughs> Comfortable and, and uh, ignorant of, of the approaching problem. I don't know what to tell you about how to, to, to go about you know, fighting back. I think a lot of this comes down to the personal level. And, and specifically, what is your line in the sand? I mean, isn't it ironic? The very same people who just a few short months ago were clamoring for uh, those of us who are unvaccinated to be removed from society now are the same people who are clamoring for, well, you know, we got to take the guns away from people because it's just too dangerous. I'm sorry, but you've already shown me what your true nature is. When you were urging that I should be barred from any place in public, I shouldn't be able to go to a restaurant, I shouldn't be able to hold a job. Yeah. I'm not going to negotiate my right to keep and bear arms with people who were, in a very literal sense, trying to destroy the lives of people like me, who are simply standing up for our personal autonomy and the right to refuse a medical procedure that we did not wish to be a part of. Is that hard to understand? Maybe maybe I'm just a little obtuse in thinking that uh, that, that just... To me, it doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. But to the people who need to be in control, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something more to it. I saw a really scary video on Twitter yesterday, and it was, I believe, a lady in the Canadian, uh, uh, the Canadian business world. She's an HR rep, and she was talking to anybody who considers themselves a freedom fighter, you know, someone who's standing up for freedom, and just gloating and flexing about how I have control. I talk to other recruiters. I talk to other HR people. We're going to punish you. We're going to take your job away. You had a choice, but you had to stand up. The look in her eyes is nothing short of demonic. I don't use that term likely. It's, it's really spooky. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. Yep, talking food storage, emergency preparedness. I don't think I need to convince you that uh, this would be a good idea, so I'm just going to say please click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Click on lifesavingfood.com, do a little shopping, see if there's something that would make your life better. I'm confident the answer is going to be, oh, yes, definitely. Well, a couple things I wanted to share. In the last segment, uh, talking about, you know, some of the economic stuff that is is looming over us. I'm going to just kind of share a thought that a friend shared with me yesterday. He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur, a guy who really has his head on straight. And he said uh, he had a realization yesterday that things are 
about to get real with the economy. And these are some of the things that, that have him going, ooh, his spidey sense is tingling. Major corporations are starting to implement hiring freezes. Collection agencies are above capacity and can't keep up. Some of the people that he works with, some of the customers he works with are, are being laid off. Homes are not selling, and he lives in a pretty hot uh, real estate market. He pointed out that a relative's home has been on the market for a couple of weeks at least with no showings. Interest rates are, are increasing. Diesel is in short supply in the east. I don't share this stuff with you to scare you, but just this is a reality that really needs to be faced. And, and, and the truth of the matter is there's not a lot we can do about it because so much of this economic fallout is the result of policies that were implemented further on up the food chain by people who think that somehow they're going to defy, you know, the laws of economics or just the, the laws of the laws of nature. But we better see what's coming for what it is. And part of that can be, you know, taken care of with, with being more self-sufficient, you know, staying out of debt, having some savings set aside. I think the thing that I'm going to urge you to, to really strongly consider, though, and I think this is where the, the greatest focus has to be at this time, is in being the best version of yourself that you can be. I think we need to be uh, capable of helping other people. And in fact, I, I will tell you right now, there is great peace in being able to, I'm going to use the word minister, to the people around you or to, to help other people who may be struggling. Not just help them financially, but to, to be there for them, uh, just to be present, you know, as they're going through really difficult things. But it's hard to do that if you yourself are fighting a battle. Does that make sense? If there are things within your personal character that need to be rectified or polished, you know, some some rough edges knocked off, this is the time to do that. This is the time to, you know, really apply yourself to being the best person that you can be. Because I don't think any of us are going to skate through the the difficulties that are ahead unscathed. We're all going to feel the pain. My prediction, though, is that the people who will get through it and will come through with flying colors are going to be the people who have themselves squared away and are in a position to be a source of strength and encouragement for the people around them. I know, you're like, I didn't volunteer for this. I'm like, none of us did. (laughs) None. But this is the situation we're facing. And I think that's the duty that's being laid on us. Now, with that comes an opportunity. At the risk of, you know, sounding really metaphysical here, but... I think what's being given us is an opportunity to become much more highly refined in our own personal character. And I say that with the understanding that that kind of refinement does not come as just some easy, painless, you know, snap your fingers kind of process. It usually comes as a result of difficulty, trial, effort, and sometimes a a fair amount or even a great deal of legitimate pain. Look back at the times in your life where you have gone through some kind of a personal storm or some kind of a personal test or trial or trap. On the other side of those events, did you come out of it a better person? Well, there's your answer. These things aren't given to us to make us miserable. 
I'll be so bold as to say, I don't think God, you know, sends this as a punishment. That's because you didn't go to church and you should feel bad. It's, it's part of living in a world that is ruled by laws that, uh, you know, allow that bad things will happen. You know, a coyote will eat your cat. <laughs> the, the, the neighbor's dog may bite. People will betray you. People will sometimes just be rude. But there's always the opportunity to be a better person, to be a greater person, maybe the better way to say that, than you were yesterday. And that's where your real competition is. It's not with keeping up with the Joneses. It's not with beating that political party over there. It's about becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. All right, I'm going to step out of this uh, life coach mode here and and, uh, just give you a couple of quick excerpts. In my show notes today, I'm including an article from John Miltimore. This is uh, talking about how the government's own study has concluded that its ban on assault weapons, its so-called ban back in the 90s, didn't reduce gun violence. Just a little more intellectual ammo that uh, you can you can file away if if uh, for instance you find yourself talking about uh, you know proposed gun control measures i don't know about you but when that gun control or that assault weapon ban was enacted back in 1994 the world didn't end people kept their guns people bought new guns frankly i had never owned a real military pattern semi-automatic rifle until I think I bought an SKS in like 1993. They were cheap, like 70, 80 bucks. Ammo was dirt cheap. Fun plinkers. But when that ban passed, that was that was my cue to go and buy my very first AK-47. And it, I did it completely because someone was telling me, I don't want you to have that. And my response was, oh, really? Then I must have it. And I will say during the time that that ban was in place, 1994 to uh, 2004 until it sunsetted, man, I bought and sold and traded more so-called assault rifles, you know, than, than I can even keep track of. I can't even remember how many different military pattern rifles I owned at that time. And it was fun. It was, I was enjoying the shooting. So it wasn't all, you know, end of the world stuff. It was just... No, I got into into shooting in a big way. So, yeah, it didn't stop the sales. You know, and by the way, I didn't commit any crimes either. So that's, you know, there is that. I think more uh, so-called assault weapons were sold during those years than anything. And then when, when the ban went away, <laughs> you know, people returned to adding flash hiders or bayonet lugs or anything like that. It just didn't do what it was advertised to do. This is going to stop crime. It didn't. John Miltimore crunches the numbers for you and shows you exactly why. You know, the the true moral purpose of government is to protect individual rights. And if you're going to try and deprive other humans of of their rights for some greater good, that's nothing more than a perversion of the law. There's also an article I'm going to include from Caitlin Johnstone. Another thought-provoking essay, you're only as free as you allow your world to be. She says, the struggle to obtain power is the struggle to gain control over the people around you. Trying to gain more control over a romantic partner, a family member, workers, the citizenry. All of these things are an attempt to gain power. Gaining control over others gives us the feeling that we're making ourselves more safe and secure because to whatever extent we're able to exert it, it seems like we're able to control what they do and prevent them from creating undesirable outcomes for us. 
And she says, the assumption that more control means more safety is mistaken. It's what generates most of the suffering in the world today. It's also what drives the impulse to obtain power. Now, one of the things that she talks about here is if we would just ultimately wind up relinquishing control over each other and over life itself, that would bring us from a state of control to a state of freedom. And it'll probably be a sloppy, awkward process as with more control coming in at times and being relinquished as it's seen unnecessary. Two steps forward, one step back. But she says, I think we'll make it. And the cool thing is, we can begin this process ourselves right where we're standing. Just by relinquishing the illusion of self and separation. Now, there are lots of teachings and pointers out there to help anyone who wants to get started on this. All you need is a sincere curiosity and a willingness to let untruth fall away. But Caitlin Johnstone says ultimately the path to ending egoing and that need to control others is the same path as ending empiring. Letting life be as it is instead of trying to manipulate and control. And she sums it up by saying we're only as free as we allow our world to be. In setting the world free, we set ourselves free. In setting ourselves free, the world becomes that much freer. And I'm just going to put my own little spin on this. The degree to which you are are willing to allow others to be free. That's the exact degree of freedom that you yourself deserve. Does that make sense? If you can disagree with someone but still respect their right to free speech or their ability to make decisions for themselves, to do peaceful things, then you deserve to be a free person. And if you can't do that, you don't deserve freedom. This is The Brian Hyde Show.